Hi, um, Camilla. Uh, let's bring you up. How are you doing? Hi, everyone. Um, Camilla, I, I invited you to speak. If you ac uh, accept, then you will be able to come up here to the stage. Hi, Gilbert. Hi, Brandon. Do you also want to come up? Um, I'm inviting you. Can you guys hear me well? Hi, how are you? Um, oh, hi. hi. Can you hear me oh, now? There you go. Hi, hello. Yep. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, we oh, can. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no worries. Hi, Brandon. Hey. Hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Meet um, Dr. Camilla Bellone. She will be presenting today. So um, yeah, thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. So you tell me, Katarina, when I should start, right? Yeah, yeah, let's wait a few minutes. For, let people come in um, and uh, I'll ping a few people into the room and then I'll introduce you and then we'll start. Perfect. Thank you. Invite some people now, hang on. Hello, everybody. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, too. Thank you. Um, it's, uh, it's cold again. Yesterday was like summer in New York. And today it's cold again. <laughs> it was so weird. Yeah, it's cold over here, too. Yeah, but yesterday was really was so I always still think in Celsius, it was like 23 Celsius and really warm. And yeah, today is winter again, kind of winter. Well, so anyways. <laughs> Hi, Monica, you're here too. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Uh, Monica will be also presenting her work um, in in this club so i'm so glad you come too if you want to come up and ask questions later on um, please come up to the stage i'll invite you to speak hi shane hi iskander ingemar jette and sundar welcome uh, we'll start in uh, around one to two minutes so um hi monica <laughs> i'm not sure maybe you probably don't know Camilla, but uh, meet Camilla. She's our guest speaker for today. Uh, nice to meet you, Monica. <laughs> oh, she left. I don't know if something happened. 
Well, hopefully she comes. She's oh, there you are. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry, uh, I'm still trying to adjust to this platform. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy you're coming and listening. So thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me introduce you to our guest speakers. And Camilla, people um, at this time of the day, most people that usually come in the evenings, like from the West Coast and Asia, they'll listen to the replays later. Okay. Um, just to let you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, welcome to the Science Society, everyone. We have our um, guest speaker, Dr. Camilla Bellon. She will talk about her autism research, which is really interesting. And let me give you a little bit of background information. Um, she's an Italian neuroscientist and assistant professor in the Department of Basic Neuroscience at the University of Geneva in Switzerland. And um, she um, studied pharmacology at the University of Milano and then found a mentor in Monica De Luca, a neuropharmacologist, where she completed her master's in pharmacy. And then um, she completed her PhD in the joint lab of um, <clears throat> Roger Nicole at the University of California, San Francisco. And then um, shortly after she joined the Nicole Lapelona published her first author paper in Neuron, exploring the trafficking of NDMA receptors in hippocampal pyramidal cells in newborn mice. And then in 2007, she returned to Switzerland and pursued her career. And now she uh, has her independent lab. Um, and she received a bunch of um, awards um, so, um, yeah, the 2012 Gertrude von Meissner Foundation Prize and 2014 from, um, Foundation Lupi Pizza de la Research. And, um, sorry, my, I don't know French, <laughs> I'm really sorry. Um, so yeah, she, she is a really wonderful scientist and, uh, I was happy to meet her recently here and um yeah welcome camilla and thanks for being here so thanks katarina for uh, inviting me it's a great pleasure first of all because i uh discovered the club uh, uh deck and uh, it's a beautiful uh, uh instrument uh, to share science so today i'm uh, glad to discuss uh, with you uh, about uh, our recent uh, work and uh, I mean, let's start from uh, the main result we got uh, uh, in uh, this recent paper is that uh, what we demonstrated is that the mutation in a gene that uh, was previously linked to autism spectrum disorder can make the brain more vulnerable to a second hit. And in this case, a second hit was uh, an immune activation. So what I would like to do uh, today, tonight, uh, with the time that uh, I have, is that to, to try to, to drive you through how we got to, to this uh, uh, result and which were the questions we were interested in at the very beginning. So one uh, uh, important aspect that you know is that autism spectrum disorder is a neurodevelopmental uh, uh, disease uh, uh, that includes uh, um, and is characterized by social communication uh, deficit uh, and repetitive behavior. 
So there are many genes that has been linked directly to the autism and many of these genes are coding for protein that are located at the level of the synapses. That is the place where neurons take contact and communicate. So one of the problematic in uh, this uh, uh, research domain is uh, uh, two questions that I was asking. So one was uh, which is at the origin of this social deficit? Why the social domain is specifically and uh, somehow very much affected in this patient? And second question is uh, why there is a, such heterogeneity across uh, uh, different people? That means that even uh, people that uh, show the same gene mutation can have a, a high heterogeneity in their phenotype. So these were the two main questions and are still the two questions that drive my research. And uh, to answer the first question, so what are the origin of the social deficit? We rely on one hypothesis that now dated uh, a few years uh, that states that the social deficit in autism spectrum disorder may be the consequence of alteration in uh, motivation to interact with other individuals. So basically uh, what this hypothesis states is that uh, uh, people uh, uh, affected by autism spectrum disorder they do not show proper orientation toward the social uh, stimuli, to work on specific. They do not like uh, uh, um, the interaction and they do not want to neither initiate or maintain this uh, uh, type of interaction. So uh, although this idea was conceptualized in the framework of uh, uh, psychological work, uh, we are neuroscientists, I'm a neuroscientist, I'm working on animal models, so we took advantage of animal model and the possibility to study social behavior in animal model to really try to dissect the social motivation hypothesis. So which are the mechanisms that are underlying this deficit in social motivation in autism spectrum disorder? And this is the reason why we started to look into the uh, mesolimbic reward system that is really the brain structure, the brain circuit uh, that is responsible uh, for the reinforcing properties uh, of social interaction. What does it mean that this system uh, contains neurons that are dopaminergic neurons in the uh, area that is called ventral tegmental area? And when social interaction, uh, when a conspecific arrives, these neurons are activated and um, release a dopamine in the ventral striatum. So the hypothesis that maybe deficit in this reward system may account for sociability deficit and for deficit in social motivation. So this is what we have done. So in um, our recent paper, what we have done is that we used uh, uh, an uh, um, approach where we downregulated uh, a gene that has been linked to autism spectrum disorder, the Shank3 gene, uh, in mice after the birth initially. And so when you uh, downregulate uh, this gene specifically in the nucleus accumbens, in this part of the nucleus of uh, uh, ventral striatum, what we could do is that we could recapitulate uh, sociability deficit. 
basically what we could do in this case were to use a three chamber test where you can test the preference of the mouse to interact with another mouse or with an object. Normal mouse specifically go to explore uh, a social uh, um, stimuli, while when we downregulated the shank free, these were accompanied by this time that we're spending with the social stimuli and object was the same. So they do not show any sociability. So when we look at specific activity of this uh, neuron within the nucleus accumbens, what we realized was that uh, this uh, change in sociability was correlated with an increased excitability of D1 neurons uh, uh, in the nucleus accumbens. This is a specific type of uh, medium spiny neuron that are GABAergic neuron in the nucleus accumbens. So the advantage of animal models compared to human is that we could do not have to stop to correlation, but we can prove causality. So with using a, a genetic tool to manipulate the activity, we could, <coughs> what we'll show is that if we could re rescue excitability of this medium spiny neuron, we could also, <coughs> sorry, uh, recapitulate and restore behavior. So in this first part of the study, we really prove the causality between uh, increased activation of uh, this neuron in the nucleus accumbens and the change in sociability in these mice. So when we then use uh, an approach to look, okay, so we downregulate a gene, we change excitability, we change the behavior, why is this happening, right? Which is the mechanism, which are the molecular mechanisms? And so this is how we did it in this approach. We use the uh, um, RNA sequencing. Uh, so we really extracted the neurons that they, uh, were shank-free was downregulated, and we make an analysis of the gene that were uh, change their expression when we were downregulating shank free. So, which other gene change their expression when we change expression of this ASD related gene? And there came our surprise because what we could see is that, of course, we were also changing expression of other genes that were linked to the synapses. But we also um, proved that there were many genes uh, related to uh, immunosystem process and inflammatory response. So there were the first hint that we had that to show that there was maybe some link between uh, the shank 3 downregulation, the sociability deficit, and uh, the uh, inflammatory response. So, Based on this data, what we did it is that uh, we tried to, to investigate if uh, there was a, a causality between this inflammatory profile and the sociability deficit. And uh, actually, we took at that time the approach of uh, uh, the mouse model where the shank 3 is downregulated in heterozygosis. So it means that only one copy of the gene is altered. And why this was interesting, because uh, while in the complete knockout mice, the sociability deficit were already being shown, heterozygous mice are much more heterogeneous. And some laboratory were showing deficit, other not. And the results were really uh, has discrepancy. So we took heterozygous mice, where at baseline, we did not show in our lab any differences in sociability. 
And what we did it is uh, we made a challenge on uh, immune activation. So we injected the, the LPS. So this LPS basically what does it is increase the uh, inflammatory profile and provoke an immune activation. And this is postnatally, right? In uh, adolescent, uh, almost adult mice. And there what we discovered is that when the mice were challenged with this immune activation, they were able to, we were able to reveal sociability deficit. So the mice were now impaired in their social function. So that was uh, the link uh, to say that uh, you have uh, um, the brain that is more vulnerable to immune activation if there is a presence of, the, of this uh, uh, genetic uh, uh, alteration. And then what we were able to, not only to reveal that, but we were all also able to prove the molecular mechanism. So what we did it is that we found that there was one specific gene that was very interesting because we're linking the excitability and the inflammation that is a TRPB4. This gene code for a, a channel that is responsible for excitability and is uh, normally activated by change in temperature and by inflammation. So we saw that uh, in heterozygous mice, when LPS uh, was injected, not only they were showing sociability deficit, but these were accompanied by an increase in excitability of the neurons in the uh, nucleus accumbens and an increase in the gene expression of TRPV. So at that point, we have uh, just to link uh, uh, the behavior, the cellular and the molecular mechanism. And what we were able to prove is that if we um, inhibit uh, the uh, protein, the TRPV4 with uh, an inhibitor, we were able to rescue the sociability deficit and the excitability, really proving the causality between all these uh, uh, elements. So now I think that if I want to conclude, is that uh, whether our finding not necessarily point to uh, a cause of autism in people with shine 3 mutation, but demonstrate rather that such a mutation can make the brain more vulnerable really to this second hit, such an immune activation, and reveal that there is an important probably time period during which the brain may be more susceptible to this immune activation. Indeed, in this late age, when we activate this immune uh, process, uh, the uh, alteration was only transient, where we think that if immune activation uh, happened early on, these uh, uh, conse consequences can be more chronic. So I think that uh, uh, we, we, our, uh, our um, study really uh, was uh, really able to, to give uh, the, for the first time uh, um, a molecular mechanism underlying this gene environmental uh, interaction and open now the route for a new uh, avenue to really to try to understand better which are the uh, signaling cascades that are responsible for that. And uh, I mean, I'm happy now uh, to take question, but maybe the things that I think could be interesting to discuss is really this uh, 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 the origin of social deficit and maybe 
there is a need of stratifying patients based on uh, the origin of social deficit. So you can show that social deficit can be the consequence of uh, motivation deficit, learning deficit, uh, or even of anxiety, right? So this is, uh, is very needed, it's very important to really understand that. And then to really realize that it's a high heterogeneity and there is not just one autism, but multiple autism uh, diseases. And then uh, there are no one solution that can fit all. Yeah, thank you so much. This is so interesting. And I really love your work um, that you show, um, how you showed it. And um, it's always things that we hypothesize and you finally were able to show to everyone um, this vulnerability and um, these insults that add on. So um, do you think um, there are other stressors that would um, elicit a similar cascade of reactions? Um, let's say like stress, um, may be maternal stress or maternal separation or or some drugs or exposure to some pollutants do you think um or are you planning on um checking more stressors or um do you think they will have a similar um signaling cascade yeah uh, this is a very important point i think that uh, yeah so it, it can be that other stressor um can uh, uh, have the same outcome maybe by a, a different uh, uh, molecular mechanism but uh, uh, definitely the end point uh, can be the same um, the system is susceptible and susceptible to stress uh, to inflammation and i think that what makes play a very important role is really the timing, right? So as I say, we, we did all our manipulation in adulthood, and this already was showing that we're able to acutely uh, alter sociability and excitability of the neurons. So now what we are planning to do is to uh, apply um, this uh, uh, challenge early after the postnatal development, where we know that there are critical period of uh, development for the reward system. And we think that by doing that, we may end up with a more chronic deficit uh, in, uh, in mice. So do you think in the future we could um, screen basically, maybe pre-screen already uh, based on the parents, but um, that we can maybe generate a screening and then with um, children that have a higher vulnerability to have different approaches when, for example, an infection is happening to prevent basically the onset or maybe a more severe autism uh, onset do you think that you know is it going that way yeah i think that more and more study pointed toward the uh, personalized medicine right and i think this is uh, uh, exactly the point of this study it's showing that uh, we need to look more carefully individual people individual uh, uh, patient uh, in order to really understand uh, why uh, they develop uh, uh, their profile. So we need to profile the patient much better in order to have uh, uh, and design a specific uh, intervention. 
So now I, I'm not a clinician, but uh, what I, I mean, the reason also why I was interested in this work is that uh, speaking with clinicians and with many uh, actually parents, they often say that, that the symptoms of their children uh, got worse when uh, they uh, had an infection, right? And seems like a, a trivial one-to-one -one, uh, addition, but uh, I've, I've thought about that. And uh, I mean, everyone just really underlined this aspect, right? So when the kids, autistic kids get sick, uh, their symptoms uh, uh, get worse and worse. So it has to be some uh, interaction between these genes and uh, the inflammation or stressor. When this happen, whether it can happen uh, in the when during the pregnancy or even after birth, right? So our study showed that it's not just during the pregnancy that this happen, but can happen even after the birth. Yeah, very interesting. But I want to open up um, for everyone else to get the chance to ask you a question. So please flash your mic and go ahead and ask your question. Um, yeah, if right now people are maybe still thinking or um, uh, not asking, <laughs> I'll keep asking. Oh, Monica, go ahead. Um, uh, hi, Camilla. So Katarina, can you repeat, do you, because I did not hear very well the question. Um, yeah. So as far as, yeah, it was a little bit, I think you're far away from the microphone or something, Monica, maybe. Am I, um, I think, yeah, yeah now, now it's, you can ask again. Yeah, thank you. I guess I'm just wondering if there are any, uh, it's a general question, if there are any epigenetic factors involved with ASD, or is it something uh, that's not, So the question is that whether there are other genetic factors that can contribute during the, the pregnancy? Uh, I think epigen epigenetic. Epigenetic. Mm -hmm. ah, yeah, I mean, that, that is, the, yeah, there, there are actually, there was also a, a study showing that there was also epigenetic modification on the, on the Shanksley gene that can happen and uh, can be uh, uh, correlated or causally linked to uh, deficit uh, at the behavioral level. So I think that epigenetic modification may play a very important role. And I think that uh, overall, I mean, a general comment, I think it's really now the time to, to, to put all the, the piece of the puzzle together, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very complex. While, I mean, when I started, uh, people were really thinking about autism as a synaptic gene, as a synaptic disease, uh, and really focusing on the function of a synapses. I think now more and more we know less we know and we realize the complexity and I think that there are so many factors that can contribute that maybe the field should interrogate which are the the right direction which is our the direction where we should go 
posso falar nesse fala, não. Oh, sorry, she dropped out. Um, Dennis, Dr. Shah, um, do you have a question? Uh, hi, Katerina. Hi, Camila. That was very interesting research. I mean, as as much as I know about the TRPV4, I mean, recently there was a research about the endothelial dysfunction and the relationship between the TPRV4 and, I mean, the potential target for the clinical treatment of the age-related vascular system disease. I know about this part and about the autism. There is a, I mean, link between the autism and gut microbia. And I think that TRPV4, because it's just sensitized under the inflammatory conditions, and uh, there's too many factors can be included. I mean, such as protease, serotonin, and other other kind of factors, they can have a relationship. It was very interesting to me that I heard this perspective out of that. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting what you say because uh, it's true that when we uh, end up to have uh, the list of the genes, uh, um, actually I was looking, I did not know about the TRP before, I mean, uh, totally, <laughs> it was uh, completely new for me. And there were many genes that were either downregulated, upregulated. And the interesting part is that we were looking something that could uh, link uh, the uh, sociability deficit with uh, the hyperexcitability of the neurons. So we were really looking for channel, right? Ion channel. And also because uh, there is this idea that uh, uh, autism spectrum disorder are not just synaptic uh, diseases, but are uh, channelopathy, so disease of the channels. So this is uh, how we end up to look into the TRPV4. And when I was reading about this gene, and uh, um, I, I found this true, uh, a lot of work that had been done related to vascular system or inflammation, but very little about the central nervous system and implication for excitability at the neuronal level. So I think that uh, probably is, uh, uh, I'm not sure whether this is uh, uh, only happening in the nucleus accumbens. I think that there is more overall uh, a dysfunction of the, this gene also in the periphery and will be interesting to, to really link uh, more and more, like you say, right, this gut and brain and there is more, more and more link between the periphery and the central nervous system. Um, we need uh, to have uh, a proof of causality between these uh, two aspects. Yes, also there was, a, I mean, report about the methylation-dependent silencing of the TRPV4 uh, expression, which was associated with the various pathophysiological conditions. So I think that you have a long way to go, Camila. Hopefully you're ready. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh... Dennis or Brandon, do you have a question? Sure. Um, hi, Camila. Thanks for joining us. Really interesting um, discussion and paper. I was wondering what you see in terms of the future of this work. Like, which direction are you looking? Like, you know, what would your next experiment be? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, so you know, I'm a. Um, I was. A, I'm. 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 I mean, I'm a slice. I'm a physiologist by training uh, and become more and more behavioralist and uh, in vivo work. And uh, I realized that uh, in this uh, 
um, project uh, uh, to go on uh, I needed help uh, uh, from experts uh, in uh, more cellular biology and cellular bi neuron cellular biology so actually the the nice uh, uh, thing is that uh, uh, after the first finding and after the before paper was accepted I contacted the um, few people in the in Europe, uh, and we uh, participate to a call uh, that is uh, the uh, Eranet. So we got a grant. We are four that got a grant to really continue working on that direction. And in that respect, we have help uh, from people that are expert in uh, microglia and astrocyte, uh, people that are expert in uh, um, molecular signaling and people that are expert in uh, uh, brain organoid and EPSL. So I think that uh, to go toward this direction and really to tackle uh, the molecular mechanism and uh, which is uh, the, 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 uh, the origin of this TRPV for increase and whether it could represent an um, important uh, pharmacological target, uh, this is where I would need the help of uh, other expertise. For what concern my part, I think that uh, what we are really into is to understand whether if we change uh, the uh, critical period of development, so if we uh, apply this challenge early on, whether to see we, whether we have more chronic deficit. And then in my lab is mostly trying to develop a new task also to, to really understand the social motivation deficit. So what, now we have uh, uh, developed an instrumental task where mice have to press the lever to interact with other mice, where we can really look and dissect uh, research, uh, reward approach uh, versus uh, reinforcement learning uh, and uh, uh, effort. So we really want to go at the origin of this motivation deficit. So why mice are not uh, uh, interested is that they are not interested or they are not learning. So really to dissect this uh, at the behavioral level and then to try to dissect that at the circuit level where uh, my expertise is. I, I really appreciate that it sounds like a very interdisciplinary effort um, I find that those tend to be the most comprehensive. Yeah, I think is uh, I mean, nowadays we, we I, I, when I started, I, I thought that uh, uh, I want to work uh, alone in my lab, my group of people and uh, really drive uh, the research within my lab. And now I realize more and more how much I I, I like to work uh, with other people in collaboration and how we need uh, that desperately, right? Uh, everyone, uh, they, there are so many expertise that are needed uh, for answering questions that we need to go more and more toward a collaborative uh, uh, project and uh, just come out from our comfort zone. Yeah, I wanted to ask if you were planning also um, to look into other brain region and other cell types that um, that are also involved in like social anxiety or anxiety type um, in in mice. Um, are you planning to go into different uh, brain regions and maybe um, are there any? drugs that you can use to basically 
try out if there will be a future way of um, modulating this behavior. Yeah, so more than other brain structure, I mean, I, because I really, uh, I, I would really like and love to really disentangle this social motivation hypothesis. And I think that the reward process, reward system is, uh, is playing an important role in this aspect. And I would like to integrate into that uh, uh, in the nucleus accumbens, the input, right? So the nucleus accumbens receive input from the hippocampus, uh, from the prefrontal cortex, from the uh, insula and from the thalamus. So you could imagine how important is the integration of all this information uh, at that level. So you could imagine then uh, the hippocampus to send the uh, information about the social memory the prefrontal cortex, maybe more about the value of uh, the interaction, and so and the uh, insular cortex, maybe more about the, the internal state. So I think that I would still stay in this system. What I would really love to see whether this is uh, specific, and I don't think so, for the Shanks um, um or it can be recapitulated in other model systems. So we have uh, analyzed before also in this respect, uh, a neural ligand 3 model and that has a lot of similarity with the Shank model and it's not uh, uh, weird to think because they two gene code for protein that are both at the synapses. So one thing that I would love to, if I would have a, a, a big lab and a lot of money is that to, to really try to stratify also animal models and maybe stratify them based on the behavioral phenotype uh, and based on uh, uh, more like a metabolic profile or the uh, channel profile. So that would be like uh, a way to, to mimic what uh, uh, people are trying to do in a clinic, right? So to really try to stratify animal model and then from that stratification, try to see whether similar approach for rescue behavior can be applied depending on uh, uh, where the animals stand in this uh, uh, map. So this is will be my ideal plan. Yeah, it's expensive, but I understand when I did OCD research, I did uh, three models, two genetic ones, and then I elicited through um, optogenetic stimulation of specific inputs to the striatum. Are you planning on mix, if you would do that, would you plan to mix it up with one that doesn't have a different genetic, like knockout, knock in, for, you know, like a stressor, some sort of stressor during development, comparing it to the genetic models? Yeah, it can be the two way, right? It can be like an environmental versus gene, but here we show that there are interactions between two or you could even mix that in the sense that uh, it would be interesting also to take genes uh, that are very far apart uh, in a way that uh, take synaptic genes versus uh, genes that codify for something different. Um, and then to see whether there are uh, at that point also differences in their behavior and their phenotype. And then apply on top of that uh, different environmental uh, uh, like stress versus uh, immuno challenge and see uh, where they deviate uh, from the normality. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, does anyone have questions? If not, I'll keep asking. <laughs>
I have one question is about, I mean, it seems that you're mostly, I mean, focus on input to the nucleus accumbens, right? Rather than output signaling. Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting both, right? I mean, we, we just like the, the way, I mean, I, I wish we could do everything. And I think you are right. I mean, the output signal is very important, right? We know that from the nucleus accumbens, the neurons uh, go back to the VTA or they go out from uh, the midbrain versus the ventral pallidum. So it would be eventually very interesting to, to um, put everything together and study the input-output function. And um, I think that there is a, an important retrocontroller from uh, the, uh, the nucleus accumbens down to the VTA. And we hypothesize that, that this uh, uh, regulation uh, um, is maybe uh, one that is uh, responsible of a malfunctioning of dopamine neurons because there is this retro control that is uh, lacking. But these are really still hypotheses. Yeah, are you planning to do like, you know, um, electrophysiology approach to look like the probability of the inputs of release um, probability and things like that? Yeah, so we, 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 we have two approaches. So one, we look at the in vivo approach. So we've, uh, we perform a, a physiology on uh, um, uh, freely moving mice. And there we look at the activity of dopamine neurons uh, um, and see how dopamine neurons uh, react uh, uh, during social interaction. Try to see whether there is a dopamine uh, um, alteration at the origin of this uh, uh, social motivation deficit. And then the plan is to look at the nucleus accumbens and of course look at the maybe uh, input-specific synaptic plasticity that uh, uh, may occur during uh, reinforcement learning that may be altered in uh, uh, autism uh, model. Um, the other approach that we have is also to look at the um, uh, neuronal dynamic uh, and look uh, uh, with the miniscope uh, at the uh, activity of a population of uh, um, cell within the nucleus accumbens. So these are all the different type of uh, approaches that we are trying to use. And I think that, I mean, my question generally are, are starting from uh, a behavioral readout. Um, I always start from uh, a behavior and then try to disentangle uh, the, the where behavioral alteration can be originated from. Yeah, so really great. Um, Kana, are you welcome to the stage? Do you have a question? Yeah, thank you, Katrina. Actually, just now I came, so I'm listening to you of you. Uh, regarding the autism. So we'll shoot out the question now after a few people are talking. Okay, yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, yeah, um, yeah, if anyone else of um, people in the audience have a question, please come and join our conversation. Uh, if not, it will just um, come along me having one. So, um, so uh, yeah, Katrina. Yeah, so, do we have the uh, proper uh, treatment? Uh, either it may be a chemical uh, mediators or uh, any genetic uh, uh, material changes to uh, 
recover the patient which found already autism? Can anyone? So the question is that whether we have any treatment? Yeah. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, there are no uh, pharmacological treatment, right, for uh, autism spectrum disorder. From uh, what I uh, know, uh, there are, I mean, the, the, you, you can treat and you can ameliorate uh, some symptoms. And I, I mean, maybe one question can be, do we think we can cure autism, right? Uh, what is autism? I mean, maybe in the psychiatry, uh, one question as a researcher we should ask ourselves is, is whether it makes sense still um, the diagnostic view of clinician or whether we uh, can think about diseases, psychiatric diseases more like within a spectrum where different uh, um, uh, functions are uh, altered. So um, just to make an example, I mean, social deficits are common to autism uh, uh, patients, but are also present in schizophrenia patients, where also motivation uh, in some patients is uh, uh, highly um, altered. Um, social deficits are present in uh, a depressive patients uh, related to anxiety disorder. So um, the question is that, uh, do we really think we will arrive to cure autism, to cure schizophrenia, or we need to think instead to, to ameliorate uh, the function that are uh, altered in uh, these patients? So this is a question I ask myself. Yeah, thank you, Camilla. Actually, autism is a type of bipolar disorder, right? So, uh, apart from uh, the social uh, motivational treatment or psychological treatment, uh, most of the drugs which is used to treat uh, psychotropic drugs, which causes, uh, it, it leads to more depressive patients uh, cannot, actually the, uh, the pharmacotherapy is lead to the inhibit the social interaction of the patient, particular patient. What I felt, uh, that list of drugs which is given to the symptomatic relief. So those drugs make, um, make them to uh, diminish their social activity, what I felt, whether it's, it's am I correct? Yeah, I, I have really no, 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 no real answer to that. I mean, for sure, there are a lot of uh, reasons why you uh, may end up an impairment uh, in a social function. Uh, of course, uh, uh, that, uh, that, that, that is, uh, is one of the, of the functions is more sensitive probably to uh, uh, any challenge, right? Um, but... Uh, I mean, one thing that uh, I think that helped in my in, in the framework of my research is uh, the to understand then uh, the, there is a, there are behavioral intervention in autistic kids that uh, uh, ameliorate the social function and cognition if applied early on, and what I found very intriguing is that these uh, behavioral intervention are based on reinforcement learning, so. Um, in other words, if you think, if you reframe in the motivation hypothesis, is that maybe uh, the, the, these patients, they do not find uh, uh, 
the social interaction so rewarding because they have not uh, uh, learned the association between an action and the reward, what you need for the reinforcement learning. And if you ameliorate this type of uh, associative learning and if you teach them uh, with uh, this uh, intense behavioral intervention to, to like uh, the uh, social interaction and to uh, increase their enforcing properties, uh, in this patient, in some of them, uh, you have uh, um, an outstanding response. So uh, um, I, I mean, even if I'm a pharmacologist, uh, I, I think that where we should arrive is maybe to, to really better understand the behavior, to have uh, maybe some behavioral intervention and maybe designed and pharmacological approach that could help uh, this behavioral intervention. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, thank you so much for your questions. Um, um, I don't know if somebody has any questions, please raise your hand also in the audience. I think we'll go another around 10 minutes. Um, so yeah, if you have a question, please um, ask them now. And um, yeah, if not, I'll, I'll keep having a conversation with Camilla. <laughs> I, um, I did a project where we submitted a grant where we did um, maternal separation and also we're planning to do inflammation um, and um, we, it was very interesting. We saw uh, in behavior mostly only differences in cognition. And then we did RNA-seq. Uh, we sent it out um, of different brain region. And the biggest difference that we saw was in the prefrontal cortex um, and especially in oligodendrocytes. Um, it was just interesting to me and um, I wanted to ask if you uh, by any chance just looked at other behavior types too you know we run way more behaviors than we publish I guess so I wanted to ask yeah so I mean for that specific uh, project with the the shang plus uh, the uh, immune activation uh, to be honest we run just the three chamber and the direct interaction for a question of time but uh, we, we run a lot of other behavior in a general knockout where we have an impairment. And uh, I mean, we, we see that uh, what, what I, we found that is interesting is that we, as this may of interest of you, I mean, we, we follow the longitudinal court of mice, right? So what we did is, is that we follow the same um, offspring uh, from the birth up to adulthood. And we were trying to look at uh, uh, motor function, social function, and uh, uh, anxiety. And what it was interesting is that in this model, I mean, there are motor uh, uh, impairment in particular for the motor learning part. So that could be also related to uh, cognition. But uh, what it was uh, interesting is that uh, um, there were different uh, um, time course for social deficit uh, uh, versus anxiety uh, deficit. So the social deficit in this mouse model appear around the P20, while the anxiety deficit appear later um, around P45. 
So I thought that you, this was interesting because you have uh, different uh, uh, developmental trajectories of uh, behavioral function. And uh, um, the reason also why I found it interesting because in related to this specific mouse model that is a shank free, the patient that show alteration mutation in this gene, uh, they show symptoms uh, um, later in life compared to other uh, autism uh, um, uh, kids, with uh, kids with other um, uh, genetic alteration. So I found that was interesting to find this also in the mouse model. I think that we would need more and more this type of study where we look at the, uh, yeah, these developmental trajectories of, uh, uh, of behavioral function and maybe we can learn something more about the neuronal circuit underlying that. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, we, we, ha we have also Shank um, mice uh, in the lab. Um, we, I, but I mostly look at I mostly looked at compulsion. So, uh, but that's really interesting that it's so um, similar to human. It's a really good model. Actually, a friend of mine he developed a model. He's in Portugal now. Joao Pecker. Ah, yeah, I know him. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. So we don't have the same uh, mouse model. So the one we use is uh, uh, come from. Uh, Jung Jang from uh, uh, he was at the Duke and now he's at MIT, and um, so the one we use is a deletion of uh, the exon four to twenty two, while the one that uh, was developed I think from Pekka was uh, as a different exon uh, deletion. I think that the shank is super complicated because all these different isoforms and sometimes they compensate. Um, so, I mean, for us also, was uh, we were struggling at the beginning to, to try to figure out which was the model uh, that, that we want to work with. I think that, uh, like someone say, right, there are all the, all the models are bad, but some of them are useful. Uh, so we need at one point to stick with one model and analyze that. But it's also interesting to compare because that also, since the different axons are implicated, they can tell you a little bit more about the, the signaling mechanism uh, underlying the deficit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of work to compare different mouse models. You know, it's a lot of work and it's very expensive. When we had the three at the same time, our animal facility bill was crazy. So. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> just like it's uh, yeah then is the question right where we want this is why i'm saying that sometimes you think whether we should not just aim more and more at research uh, in a in a in a consortium uh, where you are much more efficient in uh, um, screening based on uh, uh, hypothesis uh, and test hypothesis with uh, um, man work that is uh, uh, stronger than for one single lab yeah, yeah, I agree that the amount of mouse models one needs nowadays to do things like we have then the CFOS ones and then we have a D1 versus D2 mouse model <laughs> and then we cross them and then you need like even more yeah. crazy. Yeah, no, exactly. So where we should stop, right? That is uh, the big question. Yeah, exactly. Um, does anyone have more questions? Um, please go ahead. Yeah, Brandon, go ahead. 
Uh, just one uh, question. Uh, of course, I have no background in any of this. That's why I'm just learning. But um, uh, the idea of curing autism seems like similar to curing cancer because of many different types. Um, so I was just wondering if, if there is similarities. Uh, is there a way that you can learn from cancer research discoveries on how to uh, pinpoint uh, some kind of um, way to cure or, or is that way off? I don't know, Katarina, whether you have uh, an answer for that. Yeah, actually, that's exactly what I did. Um, uh, that was one of my more recent. Um, so I was looking more at epigenetic factors. And um, so my idea was um, the, the cells in the adult organism that stay plastic um, are mostly, I mean, but mostly I thought are neurons and cancer cells. So usually nature just utilizes the same mechanisms again. So, um, and in cancer research, there was, was way more money. So they're way more advanced historically with knowing all the different um, uh, targets and epigenetic mechanisms that are going on. So, um, so I started screening for novel um, cancer drugs that are small compounds, so they would pass the blood-brain barrier and looked at a lot of different data sets that are out there. Um, if there's something that overlaps in plasticity, um, that also overlaps like when cancer um, is, uh, starts uh, modulating basically the shell, uh, the shape of the cell. And then I found a few and apply them. And um, so this was what I did for OCD for this three different OCD um, mouse models. And it worked surprisingly well um, because f what I would have done if I would have had a lot of money is first screen for all the different um, gene expression mechanisms that are different when um, the onset, like when they have this compulsive grooming behavior and so on. But I didn't have the money for that. So I screened for the drugs and applied them. And then I found two types, one that um, makes it worse. So um, makes the compulsion become worse and it, it worked pretty well. And then um, a counter drug counter mechanism um, and that made them the compulsive behavior like down regulated it and uh, yeah I, I used different from the same lab the SAPAP mouse model is from the same lab that comes from the shank uh, and then I used a couple other mouse models and it seemed to work right so it's interesting that you're saying that um, it comes maybe from a different reasoning but my argument is that we, we like if I would have the money, I would systematically screen for different uh, novel cancer drugs and apply them in different disease uh, mouse models, um, and um, yeah, and maybe find a, a a novel you know pathway and epigenetic factor that is important and maybe apply those drugs um, if they are not too toxic um, for different diseases. That would be 
basically my dream future research if I have the money one day. So it will be more repurposing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's so impressive what cancer research comes up with, with very specific targets and gene expression mechanisms, for example. One of my other hypotheses is that um, during cancer formation, the DNA folds in specific patterns like T-shapes and so on, G4, IM4, and so on. And there are cancer drugs developed um, that just target that, nothing else. It's really impressive what they in the last years came up with. And um, since those mechanisms are interestingly triggered by magnesium and other and a few specific ion changes, which happens when you basically excite the cell, right? You have um, these different ions um, spikes. Um, so yeah, it's another thing I would be very interested in. And first looking if there's the shape um, during plasticity as another mechanism, and then also then use those drugs to to modulate it. It's really impressive what cancer research has and what we don't have. Yeah. Definitely. And that's just because of the amount of money um, thrown at it. It, it, it. Would it be possible at all to, to kind of like, I guess, um, I guess overlap or, or uh, is there any type of um, interdisciplinary uh, research programs that, that uh, cross research? Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you asked. It's just started the last year. So NIH has a few grants now, but it's the other way around to basically use mental health drugs um, and check if it can uh, change uh, the cancer um, can like target cancer and serotonin pathway and and things like that and um, but it's just a very novel thing so I'm hoping that there will be more like this and um, yeah it's just you know the perception of mental illness that it's an actual disease is very new so I wish us basically you know people are crazy what can you do just you know, that was kind of the mentality and that reflected a little bit also in how much research money there was, I think. And it's just very recent that we see it as a disease like cancer or something like that. So that's a difference, I think. Yeah, and it's true that uh, if you think uh, the, the, the cost for the society of mental uh, uh, disorder is uh, impressive, but is in the long run. I mean, in other words, you know, uh, people that suffer of psychiatric disorder from uh, very early on, they may suffer for that for the entire life. So the cost for the society is, is uh, huge, it's enormous. So I think that that should change the mentality, right, of the, of the people to invest money in, uh, in mental health. And also the chronic disorders that, you know, start the comorbidity, like if you have depression and you don't treat it or anxiety, people tend to drink more, live unhealthy, um, eat unhealthy, like have 
a don't sleep well you know it like then triggers all kinds of other chronic disease that you can probably a lot of them relate to um, mental health disorders at some point in life and then just um, behaviors that are not very helpful start at some point yeah i agree with uh, katrina that uh, the socioeconomic uh, properties playing major role in uh, especially in this era the people are um, more stressed i i found people those having mental uh, illness they have more stressed and their lifestyle uh, the the changing of food behaviors everything uh, it not only mental health also i i found in 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 india there are number of uh, cancerous patient also uh, year by year increasing so uh, and the main uh, thing is socio economic status as well as the uh, the food habit food habit the most of the uh, foods are made by the fertilizers uh, pouring chemicals and they want to producing more uh, yield so by using this food uh, they are automatically uh, become a, a cancer patient i found many people in villages those who are working in the field uh, they are also affected by the um, uh, cancers like lung cancer and uh, um, uh, colon cancers so uh, why because of this the change of food habits uh, uh, so we need to um, uh, think that is also one of the major factor plays in the healthy of the society yeah thank you um, I, i don't know camilla if you have time if yurish has one more question um yeah sure i can answer one more question fine hey, hey girish how are you i hope i said your name right i'm sorry hey katarina i know you did uh and i appreciate the opportunity to to come up here and ask my question unfortunately i joined the room late but i'm relieved to see that the the replays are on so i'll definitely be revisiting this conversation and uh, uh dr balone your your paper uh one question and i apologize if you've already addressed this uh one question that sort of arose in my mind uh as i was listening to this and you know skimming the paper is the role of the microbiome whether it be gut microbiome or oral micro oral microbiome um and how it influences you know uh, uh autism the development of autism uh in individuals uh with genetic predispositions um you know leaky gut during a critical time period of life is also uh been fairly well associated with uh increased uh LP lipopolysaccharide levels in the in the bloodstream and uh chronic inflammatory responses um and then i guess uh as a part b to that question the efficacy of um something like fecal matter transplants or um uh, uh microbial supplementation with you know I know within the supplement realm we're not too too far advanced in terms of effective uh supplements but 
you know, any sort of shifts in the microbiome and how that may influence the progression or even treatment um, within the, the context of the autism spectrum disorder. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts, especially, you know, anything you might have seen even in experiments done with germ-free mice or, uh, you know, these notobiotic models in which uh, certain uh, microbes are transferred to, to a mouse's gut and how that uh, influences the progression of, uh, of ASD. Yeah, that's, that's my question and I, and I appreciate uh, your time. Yeah, so thanks for the question. I mean, the short answer is that we have not looked into the microbioma, microbiota, and the influence on our findings. Um, there are, I mean, amazing paper from uh, um, Mauro Costa Mattioli that have shown the direct implication of uh, um, the microbiota on social behavior. Um, and relative to uh, autism spectrum disorder. So the, the, this is a short answer, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, a comment I have, uh, I mean, I think we, we, it's something that we definitely need to take in consideration. And uh, I think that uh, um, it's very difficult sometimes also in terms of social uh, uh, behavior to compare data from uh, different labs. And I think that mostly of the, uh, the, the, reason, the reason is because of the different uh, uh, germ and virus that are present in our animal facility, right? So that could explain some of the differences uh, that people see across the laboratories. Um, so that would uh, uh, definitely point uh, toward uh, um, an hypothesis that uh, the, the germ uh, and the environment uh, where the animal uh, are uh, living uh, is uh, definitely influence uh, the uh, internal state uh, and then have an effect, affect uh, social behavior. Um, th that, that I think that uh, it needs to be taken in consideration. The problem is that uh, there are so many factors that we need to control uh, and um, somehow if we would control everything, maybe we would uh, be left with less uh, uh, finding that come by serendipity. Um, on the other hand, we will acquire more knowledge about detailed mechanism. Uh, um, where is the, I think we need to find an equilibrium. Uh, so, but I think that if we want to go toward the microbiota and see the influence of microbiota to uh, autism and to um, social behavior in general, we need to have a research that is uh, um, stronger uh, and uh, uh, use, use state-of-the-art expertise uh, and technology and ask the, the right question. And the problem that I have exactly as I say is that the problem of reproducibility across laboratory and uh, how can we really prove the causality between these findings. Yeah, those, yeah. those are excellent uh, experimental design points. And it's, it's such an interesting question too, because you know, the other thing I'm thinking about just um, on a behavioral level, uh, you know, the horizontal transfer of microbes is a real thing as well in which um, when we interact with different individuals, uh, we're exchanging microbes between one another. Uh, everybody's microbiota is so different and so unique. Uh, at the same time, there's this interchange taking place, and especially with um, something like ASD, where uh, you know 
the progression of ASD itself involves more, uh, you know, social aversion. I just wonder what sort of feed forward loop that'd be creating uh, in terms of changes in physiology and how the uh, microbiota is shaped. But yeah, all those points are, are well taken and, and thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for that question. Yeah, thank you so much, Camilla, um, for giving this um, really great and very interesting and informative talk. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you to yeah, you please and come everyone. Back. <laughs> yeah, please come back anytime to our yeah. club here. And yeah. Um, yeah, maybe Definitely. one day you'll come with updates or uh, your research. Yeah, thanks a lot uh, to everyone for the question, for the discussion. I really enjoy. Have a nice uh, day. Yeah, thank you. You too. And um, thank you. just a couple of announcements. We'll have uh, at 8 p.m. EST Dr. Enrico Rinaldi. He will talk about this research, how he um, makes models um, with AI machine learning, uh, so with quantum computing. Uh, of black holes, um, and uh, it's quite exciting research. Um, yeah, and then tomorrow we'll have Dr. Schwartz and um, talking about his new X-ray computational ghost fluorescence mapping. And in the evening we'll have uh, a study about sleep deprivation, what it does to the brain. Um, yeah, and we'll have many more rooms um, this week with the study with LSD and healthy adults and anxiety linked to gut microbial metabolite we'll have on Friday. So yeah, it's an exciting new week uh, with a lot of interesting speakers. And thank you so much, Camilla. And uh, see you everyone again later or tomorrow. Bye. Bye. Thank bye. you, Dr. Camilla. Appreciate it. Bye. Thank you, Katerina. Happy International Women's Day wishes to all women.